And then we lost the home. The bank took the house and the cars and like everything when they took the business. So we kind of had this roller coaster of a ride. So you could go on the site for free and you could see whether your fiber energy was good or is a Red Bull better. We've tested now, I think, 34 categories. That's about a thousand products total. And what's been the most shocking one for you? So it was... Hi, I'm Neil Thandar. I'm the founder and CEO of Labdoor. Labdoor.com tests and ranks the quality of dietary supplements. How did you get into this business? Really, I had been working at my past company. So the first business I co-founded was a testing lab. And while I was working in this testing lab, our job was really to test products once they failed. There was a recall for a product. Your pharmaceutical or supplement was being recalled. The company would come to us and be able to ask us, what's the difference between a good and a bad product? And we'd do an investigation and we'd figure it out for them. And when I really saw product after product continue to fail for all of these different reasons, I noticed that one of the big problems that we had in the market is, I don't know that if I'm a regular consumer, I don't know what products are passing and which products are failing. All this stuff is happening behind the scenes. And so I would have friends, I would have my parents ask me, hey, what product should I buy? Should I buy the brand name product or should I buy the generic? I knew just because I was inside the lab, but I really wish that there was a way that everyone had that same information. So that was really where Labdoor came from. The idea of let's build a independent lab where you know every month we would go to the store, we'd buy all the products on one shelf, we'd test them, we'd figure out what's the best and worst products, which products are failing. Consumers would be able to use that information to buy the best products. Was there a specific instance where you decided you were going to go ahead and make this company to help out consumers? There was one really kind of key moment that I remember, which was just my mom asking me for help on what products she should buy. And it was a, a pharmaceutical, actually, because of that, when you buy new medicine, there's just 10 page pamphlet that comes with the product. And it's like all this small print and it has this really complicated scientific medical language. I'm just trying to go through this, trying to explain it to her. I just realized that if it's this hard for someone who's in the lab, who kind of has the science for them to make this decision, then it's going to be way harder for anyone else. So there just had to be a better way. There had to be an independent, trusted source of information for these types of products. Do you have any family background in this space? Yeah. So my dad ran testing labs my whole life. When I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, when I was two years old, my dad was a PhD chemist and he quit his job and he decided to start his own lab. I watched him grow these labs my whole childhood. You know, I would go after school on weekends and watch him work. And I just love the science. It's just such a fascinating kind of chemistry where you can almost take anything from like a plastic to a pill and try to figure out exactly how much of every individual ingredient is in this product. And you can use that for all, all sorts of things. You could kind of reinvent the product and make it better. You could figure out if there was something contaminated in it. You could try to compare products to figure out which one's better. And I just love that science of it. Over time, really got to, wanted to build a business like that myself. So that's really kind of where the, my whole kind of career went from there. Okay. So just growing up, you were rounded enough that you had dreams when you were, I guess, maybe a middle school, high school that you wanted to do your own lab as well? Yeah. So I always wanted to start my own business and I always knew it was going to be in science. When I went to school, I went to the University of Michigan. I got a molecular biology and a business degree. And I put those two together because I wanted to invent new products, new medicines. 
I really wanted to be in that kind of formulation business. One thing just really changed during my college, which was the 2008 recession. So I was a junior in college. My dad's businesses, he lost control of all of his testing labs. So kind of over a one or two year period, he went from having kind of, you know, like 10 labs all over the country to having nothing. When we were trying to figure out, you know, like, what do we do? Do we still have like money for school? What are we going to do after school? What's like my younger brother going to do? Most obvious answer for us was, well, we know how to make a testing lab. Let's make a lab. He moved up to Ann Arbor right next to my college campus. And we just prepared on making it a new lab. Like right after college, immediately after I graduated in 2010, he and I, just the two of us started working on, you know, let's try to find a lab. Let's try to find a location. Let's try to find equipment. And we just started from scratch together. From that point on, really, we kind of built a really similar business, but just really focused on that kind of testing. And so I got really deep into the science of it in a way that I maybe not expected. I got to work with these companies and figure out kind of what's the failures and what's the problems in the market. And kind of that process of starting a business from scratch with my dad, really understanding what the market was, but also still kind of being an outsider. I didn't necessarily plan my whole life to be a testing entrepreneur. I just wanted to be in business in general. Then when I kind of got forced into this industry, I kind of saw it from that perspective and I saw what could be different. And I thought that there would be a great way to have a consumer testing lab and how that would really change the market. Let's talk about your dad. You're talking about he lost control. Were they just not making enough money and they had to close down all the other labs? And you were saying they were in St. Louis, Missouri. Did both your mom and dad move up to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where University of Michigan is? Yeah, so my parents ended up both moving. The, really what happened with my dad's businesses was it was just bank financing. So the businesses were doing fine. They actually still run to this day. Some of those businesses are still operating and doing really well. But there was just a couple month period where if you were losing money, the bank kind of got really nervous. A lot of companies really went under all at the same time. It's tough that it should have been kind of a the exact time for kind of banks to give businesses more time. If a lot of businesses like this one probably had gotten six months or a year to get out of it, they probably would have. But it's just a really tough place where kind of a lot of these banks really kind of shut down and took their money back at the worst time. Is that hard for you? Or were you the only child? So it's me and my younger brother. I think my dad did a great job of really trying. He really took it on as his job to take that on his shoulders. It's tough on everyone. For us, it was really interesting because we, we kind of grew up in really humble background, right? So like we started, in, when I came home from the hospital, I came to like a one bedroom apartment and we were in St. Louis. And over kind of my childhood, my dad's business did really well. And we started seeing a lot of success and we bought a nice big home and all of these things. And then we lost the home. The bank took the house and the cars and like everything when they took the business. So we kind of had this roller coaster of a ride over kind of my childhood, the first 20 years of my life. It almost kind of separated money from us. Whether we had money or we didn't have money, we got very used to being the same person, essentially. I think that experience has really detached money as kind of a main motivator in my life. The only time that happened was really right when you were going to college. So he had just slowly built up all of his businesses over what that 20 year period. And then when you went to college, it's basically when it went down. It was doing great all the way through. Like when I went to college, it was probably at its highest moment. And it was just, it was the difference between when it was more about kind of the rules of that bank loan. If the company had a couple of bad quarters, they could lose control. So the business didn't die. It just, it's just changed control. That was also a tough lesson for me. And I kind of just learned kind of funding. There's just different funding mechanisms too. 
like this business at Labdoor, we went and took angel and VC money. We didn't take any bank financing. There are just different financing structures. VC funding can give you a lot more flexibility to try more things. There's a lot more ability to pivot and move and change the business if you need to. But banks are a lot more inflexible in that way. Yeah, that's perfect. I wanted to bring out anything else maybe that you've learned before, I guess, right as you're starting this business with your dad. You said one of the things is the financing part. So do you want to, you hit on a little bit of it, but do you want to hit on anything else that you might have pulled out from there with your dad? I really think it's kind of the motivation on to keep picking yourself up and keep working. There's so much about entrepreneurship where you're just, you are going to fail. And sometimes you're going to fail because of external factor. Like someone else is going to stop believing in you. The market's going to crash. Something's going to happen. You're going to lose control. Your job as an entrepreneur is just to keep going, is to keep playing. I think about it almost like a professional athlete or like even if you're Tom Brady, 15 out of your 20 seasons are going to end with a loss and you have to pick yourself up and get ready for the next season. And it's just, that's the job, right? The job is there's going to be a lot of losses along the way. So you have to just kind of keep going. And that's the only way you get to a win. From there, let's go ahead and talk about when you graduated. Right when you graduated University of Michigan, is it like the next week, the next couple of weeks that you're starting the new lab? Or were you kind of doing that as a transition while you're already in school? While I was in school, we were just with my dad, we just do these like long hour plus long calls. I would just pace around the library and we'd talk. And so that we'd prepared for it so that basically by the, I graduated on a Saturday, on a Monday, we were like ready to work. So we were looking at lab locations on that Monday. It was just, we needed to do it. It was both my first business and kind of his only business. We were all in. We found a really great lab location and we found some used equipment. So it turns out a lot of other companies had gone down, especially in Michigan, all at the same time. So there were companies that had just like whole companies worth of lab equipment where the company had just gone out of business and people were trying to sell the, the equipment. We found one of these old labs. The lab equipment was all already there. We just had to buy it. We just cleaned it up as best as we could. And it started with just the two of us. We put up a website. I kind of built a website. We threw up some ads for the different testing that we could do. And then we got one wireless phone. We just waited for the calls to come in, essentially. These ads ended up working in the kind of the first couple months. You know, you got 10, 20 calls. We got three or four projects out of that. And we and before we jump into those first calls and the first clients, can you walk us through? Because I imagine most people don't know, and at least I don't know, how much does it even cost to get a lab started? And where did you get that money? I know you said VC funding at first, but I mean, how were you able to get that money from them too? So in this case, we had, we wanted to keep as little as possible, as little funding as possible because we were kind of at the low point. I would say a lab probably normally costs four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars to set up. But we found what we ended up finding was we put together a packet of lab equipment that was all used in kind of liquidation format. And we probably got maybe two or three hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment for like $40,000. And so we negotiated kind of this deal in a liquidation and it included like a lot of equipment that we didn't need. And then we started selling some of that equipment. It put together basically at least two thirds of the lab right off the start for just like 40K. And then what we did was we put that in the lab and we immediately put the ads up and started working. Because of that, in our first month, we actually earned $30,000 in business. So we were almost like immediately able to cover the cost of that lab equipment just from that first month of work. How about the money that you used to buy the equipment, the 40K? Did your dad just have that left over from the other businesses? Yeah, we had a little bit of cash left over and we knew that we were able to kind of make it right back. We had to be really tight on the turn to make sure that we were going to get that return really quickly. 
you're talking about you're putting ads up. So who are your customers? Like talk about your first customer. You're talking about you put a phone call in or started getting phone calls. Who's calling you? What are they asking? How are you selling them? So we had a very, it was a Google AdWords structure where we really, we knew the equipment we had could test for basically plastics, pharmaceuticals, supplements, and cosmetics, the quality of those ingredients. And so we put ads based on the individual companies, the types of companies and the industries we could test for. And then we also, we like cross-referenced it by the types of instruments that we had. So the chromatography machine we had, the spectroscopy machine we had. So people were basically searching for one of those two types of things. Our first customers were just, were kind of small product development companies that were trying to invent a new product. And so they had kind of working on a patent. And so they needed to have kind of testing done on this product. That was one of them. There was a couple of products that had failed. Other first customers was a food product that had like salmonella contamination. And so we figured out what was causing that contamination. So they were very random projects at the beginning, but the kind of the core thing that connected them all was, we called it like the emergency room service. Like if you're on Google and your product has failed and you're searching product failure analysis, or you're searching for, you know, product recall analysis, like something has gone very wrong. So you're like rushing as quickly as possible. It doesn't matter what product or what type of product. Like you just need an answer as quickly as possible. We wanted to be there and solving your problem in that moment. Google was really good for that because it found customers in that pain point. And then it also gave us a chance to start. These are really kind of customers who are ready to work today. If we could start testing today, they wanted it. And so that gave us a real motivation to kind of start and grow the business quickly. How much were you charging these people? So it was as low as kind of $5,000 for a one-week project. To, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars for a three-month project. And it makes sense. That, were there other labs that did what you did as far as you guys, I guess, try to... Your differentiator was you try to get something done right away. Is that it? So speed was a big thing for us. So there's a lot of labs that had a lot of different specialties. A lot of testing can be done very slowly for cheap. Even like local university lab, if you wanted to partner with them, they would, if you could wait two months, they could do some testing for you for really cheap. But if, one, if it has to be done tomorrow, that was one thing that was a specialty for us. The other big specialty for us is like, if you go to a university lab, you'll have to ask for exactly what the answer you want to find. So like you could show up and you say like, give me exactly how much caffeine is in this product. And a lab could tell you that, like any lab can tell you that. But if you said, I found a unknown white powder somewhere, and I have no idea what it is. Can you tell me what it is? Cocaine. Could be anything, right? That could take 20 or 100 tests. That, like a lab like ours, would have to figure out for you. Because we had that emergency room kind of concept. We had like all of the different instruments. No matter what you needed, we could test. And so kind of this problem solving, we could solve that uncertainty. And I think the speed plus the uncertainty were the two things that we really solved. Well, let's talk about just over time, what's happened. I guess we're talking about your first couple clients. Has it just snowballed since then? Yeah. So that company's now had hundreds of clients, like 50 plus people worked there. That was the first business. It's still operating. It's still running. It's now been kind of partially acquired by another company. What's it called? So the company's called Avamine Analytical Services. And so you did that for a couple of years? Is that what happened? Yeah. So I was there for a couple of years and then my dad continued to run it for years after that. But really in 2012, it just hit me this idea for LabCorp. I really thought that there was I think every testing lab really works for the industry. Everything is pointed at if you need recall analysis, someone's got you. If you need custom quality control, someone's got you. But if you're a consumer, like an everyday person, and a product fails on you, you have nowhere to go. You can't afford that $5,000 test. 
right? You definitely can't afford the $100,000 test to do this on every product that you take. It's just not possible for any one consumer to do this. And so like my idea was it needs to be something like Yelp, where millions of consumers are all using the same reviews, right? So if millions of people are all looking at the same review, then somehow we need to make a business around that, where those millions of people who all show up, they all benefit from that same review. So we actually can afford to spend $5,000 per product to figure out what's in it. And I think that really was the motivation for Labdoor. Let's make kind of like the people's lab. Well, was there anything else that, were you just not having fun anymore at Avamine? Because financially, was it successful? Before, again, we jump into more of the Labdoor, I just want to make sure we totally understand what you had at the last company before making the transition. I think the company now is like 10 million plus in annual revenue. It's 50 people. When I left, it was probably 15 people, two or $3 million in revenue, but it was profitable. It had steady customers every month. And I would say between me and my dad, it didn't need both of us to run it. It's obvious now, years later, that he was able to run it by himself. And I think because of that, I think that was why I had enough, a little bit of extra capacity to maybe study or learn or think. Sometimes you're like early on in a business, you're in such tunnel vision because you just need to make the business successful no matter what. But then two or three years in, the business is profitable. I started looking at what's the biggest possible lab you could build? Could we really make a lab that was worldwide? Could you make a lab that everyone in the world used? The hard part was actually like, well, is it really obvious when a company wants to work with a lab, they just pay you. And so you might need to be this kind of testing lab, B2B works really well, but how would you make a consumer focused lab? And so it had just kind of, I had thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And eventually it just said, there just needs to be a website that does this. And that's when it kind of just, I was ready to do something new. Was there anything else that led to it? I mean, how was it working with your dad at the old company? I think it was great. I loved working with him. We've always had a very kind of peer-like relationship where even when I was in high school, he would talk to me about his business, how it was going. We would kind of work through issues. We'd talk through things. It was always fun to do that. I'm so glad that I got that experience at least once in my life. It's rare for people. And I think people always assumed like, oh, that must be so hard. I could never work with my dad. And I always said like, oh no, it's like totally easy. You want to work with like people who are, who you completely understand. Like if you ever want to start a company with someone, the best possible person is someone who you like 100% trust and understand. It's perfect. That's like the best person to start a business with. We were able to kind of really separate kind of family time from business time. And then being in the business and having that total trust made it really easy to work together. That business was in Ann Arbor. Now let's talk more about Labdoor. So you said something about B2B versus the B2C. That's kind of the transition it seems like you're making with the old business to the new business. Exactly. So I started the idea just like nights and weekends, I would draw things up on my computer. But then I like quickly realized that I needed it. This needed to be also a technology company. So if it's going to be B2C, then the website is the tech that is going to be the delivery mechanism for this information. I kind of went searching for a great designer and developer to build this website for me. I found kind of two people who are now my business partners, Elton and Raphael, who are still our lead technology and design at Labdoor today. I kind of met them at one startup event and then a week later asked them, hey, can you like help me mock up a website? I assumed like help me mock up a website meant like they were going to, from Indianapolis, they were just going to work on it and like send me something. You know, and then we'd like email back and forth, but they just showed up in Ann Arbor. 
8 a.m. on a Saturday morning. They had driven through the night from Indianapolis and they're like, oh, we're here. Let's spend all day this Saturday and mock up the website. And so I thought that was really cool. And that was, it showed commitment and enthusiasm. Through the course of that day, it was like eight hours worth of work. It was just really clear that we worked well together and that this should be kind of the basis of the company. We kind of started setting up the structure of the company to where we'd basically have Elton Raphael join me and kind of make this kind of a bigger company. We kind of started setting up the structure for that company. We actually initially registered it in Indianapolis because they were already there. I was the only person in Ann Arbor. Initially, I started driving back and forth to Indianapolis. We started building the first version of the website. And really for the first few months, we just kind of heads down and just tried to build a prototype of the site. And so that was really the first three months. And then we kind of looked up and said, this is hard being in Indianapolis. We are really looking for all of these. We're going to need to fundraise soon. We're going to need to meet other companies. Where can we go and raise money? Out of nowhere, we really got, we got a message from Rock Health which was an incubator in San Francisco. It was just like an encouraging us to apply to their next class. It was kind of this mass email. They were offering $100,000 for 6% of the company. And that was kind of their standard offer. And so you could apply online. And if you got an interview, you had to fly the whole company to San Francisco for an interview. And then if you got the interview, then you would actually have to move to San Francisco to join this program. We applied, we got the interview, we flew out, four of us to stay in like a motel in San Francisco. We did this interview and three hours after the interviews, we were like on our way to the airport and we got the call to that we'd gotten it. That was our first outside funding for this company. And it was kind of the validation that we were able to move. We kind of immediately flew back to Indianapolis. All of our stuff was in a 26 foot truck and we were driving it across the country within two weeks. We were like ready to move and we just, we went. That was really kind of the start of our business. Our business has been in the San Francisco area ever since. I'm glad you're able to catch up and see those old group calls and those are definitely helping. Yeah, and probably the most helpful one has been with a gal that did PR. Megan Bennett. Yes, yes. Like I listened to that whole thing with all the people's questions and her ideas. And I like how, you know, you got her to tell more stories than just the regular interview. Yeah, well, I appreciate you being a Patreon. Uh, no worries, man. I, I came across the podcast a few weeks ago, and I definitely uh, enjoy them. So uh, I wanted to at least show my commitment. And at the amount that you uh, it costs, I, I wanted to go for the highest tier. So Yeah, well, I appreciate that. So were you just Googling? like a Looking for another podcast, and yours popped up. And I was like, well, let me check this out. And then, you know, I listened to one. And I love how in depth and detail. The first one I listened to was the uh, mining key guy. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one to start off with. Yeah. yeah. And and I'm in the franchising, okay, right? Perfect. So, well, I'm in a franchise. I definitely, uh, it definitely was a good one to start off. And um, I like the questions that you ask. You know, you hold them to numbers. And so I think I've listened to maybe 60 in the last three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you've been binging. As far as like episodes, what's been one of your favorite? The Meineke guy. The Meineke, yeah, you really did start <laughs> yeah. off with I thought so, too. Yeah. I've been telling yeah. everyone how great that one was. And, and and he's one of the main reasons I joined the Patreon, too. I was like, man, I got to hear the end of his story. It took, <laughs> it took me a couple weeks, but uh, yeah, I, like, yeah, I got to hear the end of his story. So if you want to hear that episode with Charles Bonfiglio, go check out episode 165. What did that feel like to get that call? I mean, were you expecting yes or no? Or did you just think there would be no chance? What, what was your predictions? It's a funny story. We actually had gone to 
so it had been kind of a, it was a multiple interview process, like three or four interviews in like a, in like a two hour process. We had a couple hours to spare before the flight. And so we all like went to this restaurant. I don't know if you've ever played this game. Everyone puts their phones in the center of the table and you stack them. The idea is like no one should be on their phones during this, like this lunch or this event. And so like the first person that touched the phone has to buy the meal. That's the game. We're sitting there having lunch and like my phone rings. Oh no, should I pick it up? Should I not? It's probably Rock Health. We've got to pick up this call. And so I grab the phone and I pick it up. And actually like I pick it up too late and it goes to voicemail. And I like call them right back. And it's like, oh yeah, it's Rock Health. Like you've been accepted. I came back and I was sure I bought the, like I bought the meal and we had like tequila or something as part of that meal. Um, it was a shock. Like we had, we had never, we'd gone from really not, not even thinking about San Francisco, not knowing who any of these investors were to kind of like in a three or four week period, we were just in the middle of San Francisco with one great investor and we were meeting all these other companies who also got into the same program. It just jump started us into San Francisco, into the startup world. It really was, it went so quickly. It kind of it threw us into the process. So within two weeks, you're driving, what, a U-Haul truck across country. Tell us about the difference in like lifestyle. What, what was that like? And expenses in San Francisco comparatively to Indianapolis or Ann Arbor? Well, it was crazy. So I remember, so like me and one of my co-founders were sharing a, in Indianapolis, a two bedroom apartment for $600 total. So it was like two bedroom, a kitchen, a bathroom, 600 total and then we decided we were going to go move to san francisco we were rushing so quickly and like we were all splitting up the work so like one person was working on the truck one person was working on the apartments in san francisco it was like one person was like shutting down some of the business stuff in in indiana like one of us who i don't remember who it was but who got the apartments in san francisco were like oh 900 bucks for uh, per apartment this must be really nice you know and so we got these four rooms for $900 each. And then we show up and it's literally like a hostel. The bathrooms are on the hall. The bed is probably two thirds of the floor space of the room that each of us have. And we're just like shocked that this is what $900 buys you. And that experience of like how much space $600 is in Indianapolis versus $900 in San Francisco was our first shock. Then our office was also very interesting. So we were we were living like right on the edge of Chinatown in San Francisco. And then our office was actually Rock Health's office, their first one. And that office was in Chinatown on the third floor of like, you'd walk into like a scarf shop in like the most touristy corner of Chinatown, take this hidden elevator up to the third floor. And then the, this was where the office was. So we had this great experience of just walking from our hostel to this through Chinatown, like past all the tourists into this little office in Chinatown. And that was our day to day. It was exciting. And you had, you know, 10 other companies that were doing the same thing with you. There was just this energy of, you know, like everyone was in that, that office 9am to 9pm every single day, like you had people in there. And then there were just these periods or these sprints where people would be there overnight. And so you just Having the other companies there, everyone's pushing themselves, everyone's trying to launch a new product or a new service was so exciting for us. It kind of was so different from the Indianapolis experience where we were by ourselves kind of working very quietly. You're saying 900 bucks a piece per room. So it was really like, what, 1800 for two of y'all? Yeah. And that was crazy because it's three times the price. We were sharing a bathroom, not just with the two of us, but with like 10 or 15 or 20 people. And so I thought I was, that was our first shock. Did you have your furniture with you and whatnot if you brought your U-Haul over there? And what did you do with all that stuff? So we ended up not... The U-Haul actually just had our clothes and things. Like it was just boxes of clothes. We ended up selling all of our furniture, I think, back there. And then the, the rooms came with furniture, like didn't have any stuff. 
And so we got very light very quickly. I loved that experience because it also was, everything was changing so fast in life, but it was also like everything was so new. Like you're meeting so many new people. You know, there's so many new experiences. I've lived in the Midwest my entire life and San Francisco is a totally different world. How much everyone else thinks about business here is very interesting. I'm like a total business nerd. Like I love thinking about Oh, what new businesses are starting? What new ideas do people have? What awesome podcasts are out there? Yeah. I mean, I love kind of listening to just how do people like the biographies of how people get started in San Francisco, just everyone else is also interested in that. And it's like self-selected people who have moved here wanted that experience. They wanted to be around other startups. They wanted to see the biggest and fastest growing things. And so it becomes fun to to be around that just like it's just more energy it's like you want to go faster because everyone else is going faster when you were moving your company out there were y'all generating revenue yet no so we were just like a prototype website at that point let's talk about how you started growing the business from there from your eighteen hundred dollars basically triple the price of the rent and i guess you're in this new startup phase let's just talk about how you slowly started growing from there in rock health we built a free version of our website. So it was, we had a hundred products on the site, multivitamins, protein powders, some energy drinks, and they were just like A through F grade based on the testing that we had done. So you could go on the site for free and you could see whether your fiber energy was good or is a Red Bull better, things like that. And that was enough for us to get a decent amount of press. People were interested. Our traffic started growing to maybe we were 10, 20,000 people per month were using the site. Could you tell us which one's better? Uh, and so the Red Bull <laughs> tested better than Fiber Energy. Fiber Energy has an amazing amount of caffeine, which is actually like almost dangerous amounts for some of the extra strength products. So Fiber Energy actually has three times as much as an eight ounce Red Bull in two ounces. So it's 12 times as potent per like ounce. It's like a really crazy, like those shots are pretty intense. And then they also have all this other stuff in them. It's just an interesting news story. And so we were able to with the help of the Rock Health people, we built an email list of just all of the reporters who might have written about like energy drinks or supplements or things like that before, even just health in general. And then we started emailing them and we started saying like, hey, we built this new service and we can tell you whether like Fiber Energy or Red Bull is better. And people just want to know that. It's interesting. It makes sense. I mean, as far as press wise, were there any other random ones that people are listening to might be interested in? Protein powders were really interesting. There's like Optimum Nutrition and BSN Synthesis are two really popular products, but we tested them in respectively like 45 and 65% protein. So they're like not the, the most protein rich products on the market. They just happen to be that the most famous brand. The same goes for muscle milk. Muscle milk's like 45 or 50% protein. We would test other products on the market, products that you've never heard of, but they'd be like 70, 80, 90% protein. The first rankings we did was for protein. So we actually ranked the products by how much protein they had in them. And that was really exciting for people because they actually were like, wait, the protein I take is number 27? What's this number one? I've never even heard of that. What was the other stuff that they would have in it other than the protein if the percentage is that low? So maybe in a 25-gram scoop, there might be like 5 grams of carbs and 5 grams of fat in there too. Okay. Instead of if one product was 25-gram scoop and it was 22 grams of protein, 1 gram of fat, 2 grams of carbs, that's a totally different product. That's a much better product for most people. But there's no way to know that really. Like you don't have a lab, like you can't do that testing. And so you just trust the brands. And I think that's what we were noticing in the space. Once we built our website and started talking to customers, we found that customers were very attached to their brand. So it's like, like I've taken this brand for five years or 10 years. It's always worked for me. If you tell them like, hey, there's something that's better. One, there was some skepticism like, oh, who are you to say that? Getting press and getting some publicity really helped us get that credibility. From there, we had to really figure out, hey, how do we convince you that 
this other product that you've never heard of is actually better. Those rankings for each individual category was how we did that. I think that's smart. Okay, so you have protein powders and energy drink. Those two are big things that would get you pressed, I think. Is there anything else? So then we started doing, we kind of got into this routine of every couple months, we would do one new category. So multivitamins came next, then we did fish oil, then we did, you know, vitamin D and vitamin C and vitamin B. And so over the last four or five years, we've tested now, I think, 33, 34 categories of products. That's about a thousand products total. And what's been the most shocking one for you? Probiotics was really interesting because there are some probiotics that had, probiotics had died on the shelf. So there was like zero active ingredients. The active ingredients are living in that case. So, so if the, the active ingredients die, like they don't work. And so that was the craziest one. It's just like active ingredients can just die in the product and you might not know. We did a lot of testing on probiotics the last couple of years and really said, hey, some of these companies that have, that are big brand name products don't have as much probiotics as you think they do. And what are probiotics if people don't know? So yeah, so probiotics are digestive enzymes that are going to help you with your regularity and kind of digestion. They're kind of usually in pill format. They are actually living organisms. They're going to actually help your gut health, especially if you've been taking kind of antibiotics or other kinds of things that have affected your microbiota. You might have lost some of that natural gut health. And so some of that comes from probiotics help you regenerate that. So when you moved out to San Francisco, did you have to set up another lab to do all this? Because you said you're in a startup space with some other guys, right? What we did with this business was we realized that we wanted to get the website right first. And so what we did was we, at the beginning, we just put all of our resources into the website. We all worked on the website. And then when we needed testing, we would just send it to a lab. So there's labs all over the country. So we knew what we wanted to test for. The nice thing about supplement testing was it was actually much more standardized than the testing that I did in my old lab. So in my old lab, like one day a plastic comes in, one day a pharmaceutical comes in. But in Labdoor, it's the same products every day. For a whole month, all we're going to do is testing protein products. Like the next month, all we're going to do is test vitamin D. And so it was actually much more standard testing. And so it was easier to send it to any lab and get it tested. So that was a unique thing for me was just as a business person was I had to go from what was my specialty, which was the testing, to like the testing was now all being done outside. And so my spe new specialty had to be how to make a great website that consumers love. And so it just changed my job very quickly. And I loved it. I really loved the kind of consumer health kind of concept of how to kind of convince people to make a better, smarter decision. That trust is so tough to earn. But once you do it, it can be really exciting because you can build a really great product around it. How do you earn that trust? There's a few ways. I think the biggest one is being as transparent as possible. So we wanted to be as accessible as possible. So we found out the protein rankings were the first one where we found out that we found a lot of traffic just showing up one day from Reddit. Basically, someone had posted a link to our protein rankings on Reddit, and it had caused this like big debate. So some people were, were saying, oh, this is so cool. Like, I can't believe like I'd never heard of this little brand that's way better. The other people on the other side were just like, were defending the brand that they had taken for five or 10 years. And they were getting very angry, right? And saying like, this lab door is BS. And there's no way that they know what they're talking about. Because you think that this billion dollar company makes like average products? No, they must make the best products. And so there's just almost like, like anger. And so we found this and we saw that our traffic was coming from Reddit. And so we like found the post that was, people were debating. I just started answering people's questions. Someone said, oh, Labdoor is BS. I bet they're getting paid off. I'd be like, hey, so, I, hey, I'm Neil. I'm the CEO of Labdoor. One, we're not getting paid off. Two, like, if you'd like to know, like, how we actually do this, feel free to ask me. And they'll be like, oh, you know, like, I'm just joking. Like, I didn't actually think you were being paid off. I'm just like, there's no way that that product is actually number one, is it? 
I'd be like, no, like, here are the seven reasons why we think this product is number one. They might be like, well, that's kind of reasonable, but I think number five is wrong. I think artificial sweeteners shouldn't be penalized because they're not actually that bad. I said, well, that's kind of your opinion. But as long as we kind of, you generally understand that this is how we do the testing. We didn't 100% convince everyone 100% of the time, but I actually ended up over the course of like a year answering over a thousand messages. We've actually answered thousands of posts. And it was just time after time after time, someone said, I don't understand it. I think they're wrong. I think they're lying. I think whatever. We just said, well, let's talk about it. Ask me the questions. Like, what do you want to know? You want to know how we do the testing? Like, here, here's where we do our testing, right? And so like, we just wanted to answer and be as transparent as possible. And I think over time, nowadays on Reddit, like years later, someone will say something bad about Labdoor and then the other people will defend us. Someone else, some random person will defend us because they actually have talked to me in the past. And so like now I don't actually have to go to Reddit every time and defend us. Like other people are like our fans are defending us for us. Some of those I'm really hoping, and I've seen some of these people who have been around for years. Some of our fans are like people who had been asking me questions three or four years ago. And so it's cool to see that connection of we earned that trust and years later now they're like fighting for us too. And so it's, it's kind of how we've built this network. So yeah, you talked about building trust, but let's talk about the actual numbers now, now that we understand you know, your business. How did you start making money and where's revenues at today? And can you talk more about the company? We actually did some research and we're finding that people were, the number one place people went after Labdoor was Amazon. So people were just buying products on Amazon after they went to our site. The first thing we did was we put affiliate links on our website. Every review had like links to Amazon and other places and we'd get a commission. Every $25 product, we made like 2 or $3, for example. That was really our business for a couple of years. And so we really, it was commerce. So from 10 or 20,000 people per month on the site grew to now that's like 400,000 plus people per month on the site. We were able to make around $100,000 a month just on this kind of commission. We've worked with Amazon and now we've started to work directly ourselves. So we're able to, to fulfill and sell products ourselves. It's kind of a business where now kind of is a million plus a year in revenue that's just all coming from e-commerce through our website. Was that your plan when you got started? Because it seems like a cool idea. You get to test things and actually find the straight facts of what's best or not. But when you get started, it seemed, I don't know if that was already in your head that, hey, we can make money doing this affiliate or was there a different way you thought you'd make money? No, I thought there was different ways to make money. So at the very beginning, first of all, I think I was just obsessed with the idea that this information needed to be public. So I thought, like, first we need to make this information site and then, like, we'll figure out the business later. So that was the first, my first motivation. When we were at Rock Health, we were just sprinting towards, let's get this website out. And then as soon as, like, through the Rock Health process, and I think Rock Health started us through that process of, they introduced us to VCs, and then those VCs would ask us, like, what's your business model? And that's when we started really figuring out that there was probably a few different ways to make money. You could put ads on the website, but we tried that and it wasn't really great. You know, those display ads, they're horrible. Everyone hates them. And they don't actually make you that much money. That was frustrating. And so we stopped that. We had an idea that it should just be like consumer reports, like it should be a subscription business. But we found it was good. It was okay. Like we could sell, we sold like hundreds of subscriptions at $50 a year, all the way up to $400 a year. It felt like it was going to be a really long path to millions of dollars in revenue going down that route. I don't know how many subscriptions you have to content on the internet. Very few people do that. I wish people were doing the same thing as the equivalent of the newspaper or a magazine. Like people used to have five or 10 magazine subscriptions at three to five bucks per person per month. That was great. Like you could actually build information business on that. But 
nowadays for an online subscription, it's pretty rare. Maybe someone has a New York Times subscription or has something, you know, one or two specific things, but it's hard to build that from scratch. We said blocking the information behind a paywall is probably not the best way to do this. Affiliate was our third test. And it turned out that kicked off really quickly because we found out the really useful thing about affiliate and why we figured out that it was working was because the affiliate has metrics built in. So your affiliate links, when you put them on a website, it'll tell you 100 people clicked on this website, on this link from your site, and five people bought. And that conversion number, that 5%, is very important because it's kind of a good proxy for how much people trust your information. The average website I've seen, like it's 2 to 3% conversion. Someone has a personal blog that reviews products. They tell you, hey, I reviewed all three vacuum cleaners and you should buy this one and here's my link. Like they can sometimes get 2 to 3% conversion on some of those things. And what we did was we launched our affiliate links and we put them on our website. And we saw like on day one, we had 7% conversion. And we're like, oh, well, this must work. People must actually be using our website to buy things. And then we were able to use that to kind of optimize. So we said, well, what if we add rankings? Does that make it better? And then like rankings made the 7%, 14% overnight. People really love the rankings. So if it wasn't just grades, if it was actually one through X rankings, people liked that even better and they were even more likely to buy. And so then that, we were like, oh, so affiliate is actually really high conversion. And that was what was able to do that. At first, did you think that was bad or did you already know what the percentage was for, that's a perfect example when you're talking about a vacuum cleaner website where they might do one through 10 and they just tested it themselves versus like doing an actual lab. That percentage where you stoked right when you got it and we heard 7% and then imagine when you doubled it. Yeah, seven was like, oh, wow, like we have something here. Yeah. And then it was also cool because then you could like optimize. So every month you could see that number go up and you knew you were doing something right. At our peak, we've done as high as like 21, 22% in some months nowadays. So that's the power of if people trust you and they understand what you're doing, it works. That gave us something to optimize for. What do you see for the future for you and the company? Well, one, I think we need to test more and more types of products. So I think that the biggest thing that we need to be able to do is I need to not just be testing supplements. We need to be testing food products. We need to be testing We need to be testing cosmetics. People ask us to test pet products all the time. Like everything that we do for human supplements and food, we need to be able to do for pet products. Um, and so just testing more products is kind of the one big axis that we need to work on. And then I think we are now looking at kind of how do we get deeper and deeper into commerce? Let's say you're not buying your products online. And the vast majority of people are not buying their products online. They are buying their products in stores still. Last I checked, I think it was 9% of supplements are sold online. That 91% that's sold in stores through distributors, that is what we're trying to figure out. How can we make that experience better? And I always thought about, you know, you go to a, like a liquor store and the wine spectator scores, you know, those like 91, 92, 93 scores that are on the shelves. One of the big things we want to do in the next year or two is really start integrating lab door scores and testing into retail itself so that if you were in a store, you could like scan a barcode and figure out exactly what Labdoor says about it. You wouldn't have to actually go online and go to our site. And for us, I think it's more products and more ways to find us. Appreciate you uh, becoming a Patreon member. Yeah, no problem, man. So what inspired you to become one? There was some content specifically, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy over at uh, Meineke, I was just like, I had to listen to the end of it. So it was, it was a good hook. It is so funny that you said that because when I literally just got done editing, the guy said the exact same thing. Really? Yeah. I kept thinking that story was so good. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know if you thought the same thing, obviously. The guy, as you can just tell, he's a grinder, you know, and you want to root for a guy like that.
Looking back, what do you think has been the hardest thing for you to overcome and what advice would you have for entrepreneurs based on that? Our hard thing was, I think, trying to figure out our business model was very tough. What I told you about how we separated the idea or the product from the business model and we did the product first and then we did the business model. I feel like that's like the romantic way to do it. It's almost like an indie band or something, right? And like you didn't care whether you made money or not. You just wanted to make a great song. That's how we were when we started this company. To an extent, we were very idealistic. And then we had to like kind of force a business model on top of it. And that was hard. We didn't really think about the two together. If maybe if I look back, it might have helped us. We would have gone a lot faster if we would have thought about those two things together. So that would be probably my biggest advice. It's really hard to build a great information business on the internet. It's really easy for people to like get your stuff for free. If a lot of stuff is going to be free, if you're doing a podcast and it's going to be free, if you know your ad model, you know how many customers you need, how many listeners you need on every podcast to make ads worth it, then that's fine. Maybe you find out that like this is going to be a hobby and it's not going to be, you don't need to make money for it. It's like a branding business. And there's all these different ways you can do it. But if you go in upfront knowing what you want, I think it makes you a lot smarter and it makes you a lot more foresighted. And I think the one thing that I did was I was very idealistic about it. And I jumped in not thinking about the business. It probably took us maybe two or three years longer to figure that out than we would have if we did it all together. We appreciate you coming on and sharing it. Is there any other last words of wisdom you'd want to leave the listeners with? I think one of the things that I've always told people when they ask me of, oh, should I be an entrepreneur? Is this something I want to do? I would just remind people that there's a lot of different types of entrepreneurship. People always kind of look at what I do now is entrepreneurship, which is it's a tech company that has a website and that's how people find me. A lab is, is an entrepreneurship. Running a testing lab is an entrepreneur. Running a, like, a fitness studio is being an entrepreneur, right? Like running a coffee shop is being an entrepreneur. There's so many different ways, you know, running a podcast or running a, any like, independent websites, being an entrepreneur, being able to do this and seeing how many different ways there are to be an entrepreneur, I think is a valuable exercise. Thinking of all the possible things that you could do instead of trying to kind of limit, hey, just what happens in Silicon Valley is entrepreneurship. Because I think that's, I really wanted to have the broadest possible definition of if you work for yourself, you're an entrepreneur and you've got to be able to just put yourself in a place where you find whatever you love. I think that's important that, that what you're saying, because this is going to happen more and more with people. I think they're going to become more independent contractors. The guy who mows lawns is an entrepreneur, right? You might not think of it just because he didn't start up a company online or, you know, actual business doesn't mean he's not an entrepreneur. That's part of the reason we try to talk to a lot of different types of entrepreneurs who are in different industries so we can just pull ideas from them. That's why having you on and all the different type of entrepreneurs we do have on is super helpful. So we appreciate you sharing your story, Neil. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, thank you. Hey there, mother effer. You looking for more tech-based interviews? If so, here's five more recommendations for you to check out. Try episode 198 with Jim Warner, or episode 79 with Brad Martineau. Another one, episode 195 with Howard Gottlieb. Number four is episode 71 with Jordan Gal of Carthook. And last but not least, episode 180 with Diana Goodwin of Aquamobile. Oh, and if you feel like helping us keep this podcast going, then consider becoming a Patreon member. Hope you enjoy those tech-based interviews. And to become a Patreon member, just check your episode notes below.